Amen. Amen. God, we thank you this morning for uh, the, the profound reality of the hope that we have in the gospel. And Father, we gather here this morning because we need that hope so desperately, so clearly is the reality of this hope, and, and we, we see it, and we know it, and we, we, we want to take hold of it and bring it right into the circumstances and the trials and the direction that's needed in our life, and we, uh, like we see in Scripture, there is a call of our hearts when we understand who Christ is that we want to grab hold of that, that hope. We want to uh, cling to it. We want to stand in it, and so, God, I pray that those words that we've spoken, that we've sung to you, would be words that would resonate and that it wouldn't just be a hope that we know that Scripture talks of, but it would be a living hope that we are taking hold of. And into that, God, I pray that, that not just the words that we speak and worship, but uh, now the word as it comes and it's uh, brought to us, God, would you lead us and guide us in it? Would you uh, direct our hearts towards faithfulness? Would your spirit convict us where we need that conviction? And would you lead us forward, God, in a way that would honor you? So I trust and ask, God, that you would do that for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, hey, Christ Church, so glad uh, you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in the room or uh, joining us online. Uh, we're just uh, so thankful for the opportunity and... Um, to gather together again, and uh, I want to remind you that as we uh, open God's Word together, you can start turning uh, to Acts chapter uh, 12 is where we're going to be at today, um, and as you turn there, I want you to remember that we're not just studying a book, we're not just looking at words on a page, but when we approach God's Word, it is as living and active as the hope we just sang about is in Christ, and my, my prayer and my heart for you is as you even turn the pages of Scripture to Acts 12, I pray that you would be asking the God who spoke those words into existence, that you'd be asking that He would interact and engage and lead your life in this, that the Spirit of God would bring the conviction that the Spirit of God wants to bring and needs to bring, because we're not just getting direction for life, we're looking for revelation about the God who spoke these words into existence, and so... Um, that God, he um, stands behind those words and he wants to draw you near by grace and lead you forward. And so just recognize what we're doing as we open God's word together. Um, so, so I want to start with just a question. Um, how many of you have heard the reference a paralysis by analysis? Everybody, everybody heard this reference? Like, not surprising that this is a, a reference used in our world of a seemingly uh, infinite choices on everything. And, and this idea of being paralyzed by analysis comes when we, we think about something so much and we analyze all of the options to the point where we just sort of freeze. It's kind of like some of us have like five or six or seven or 20 tabs open on our, on our internet browser because we're comparing cost and, and, and looking at the different reviews on something and we cannot make a decision. Paralysis by analysis. But it can also 
and not just impact our, our, our shopping habits or vacation decisions or what kind of cereal to buy. It can also impact our faith. And I see paralysis by analysis playing out a lot around the topic of prayer. I see the questions that, that come up. It's, what do I pray for? Am I saying this right? What am I going to say when I pray with other people? Do my prayers really matter? Does God hear my prayers? And we start to analyze so many things in the logic of our mind. And we, we should ask those questions. We, we should consult Scripture about what Scripture says about prayer. But in prayer and in other areas of faith, we need to follow what the Scripture encourages us so often is to come with a childlike faith. To come as a child in humility, um, not needing to have all the answers but, and, and, not, and not caught up in all of the analysis, but just moving to God himself. And, and, and to share with him authentically our life and our struggles and our decisions and our burdens and our requests. Any person who knows God and his word who's even read quickly through the New Testament would know that God is constantly calling us to call on him, to confess, to ask, to praise, to seek, to cast our burdens on him. All of these words just reflect um, a God calling his people to draw near and to talk to him. He doesn't seem to even be necessarily concerned with all of the questions. He's saying to us again and again, less analysis, more prayer. Just come, come. Today we're going to get a glimpse of how the early church prayed and the way God ordained a miracle through their prayers. And then we're going to draw on some very uh, real truths for us in our lives and in our church. And this is the big idea that we're going to see in Acts chapter 12. Fervent prayer is the mark of a church that believes in God's power. Fervent prayer is the mark of a church that believes in God's power. So let's start. Uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So what I want you to make sure you understand here is, is Herod, um, this is referring to Herod Agrippa I. He was... Um, uh, a, a king, he, he kind of was over a province, but was given this sort of title because Herod was renowned for sort of needing a little bit of like, you know, affirmation and was very concerned about what people thought about him. He actually, um, historians say that he sought to live as a faithful Jew because he always, he wanted the favor of all people. So he sort of presented himself as he felt like he needed to around different people. We all, we all know people that are like this. And and because of this alignment, he likely saw this small Christian movement as a threat to his regime and because it was a threat to the Jewish community that he was immersed in and trying to lead, um, he joined them in coming against the Christian movement. And if you want to take out a movement, we all know you take out the leader. That's what you do. And so 
Um, he was a serious threat, Herod. Um, he had already ordered the murder of James, as we see, the brother of John. And now he captured Peter, and everyone thought the same. He wasn't looking to bring Peter out after Passover so that he could preach a message. I promise you that. He was going to bring Peter out to execute him. And so everyone thought the same fate was going to happen to Peter because they're, they're praying together and they're rallying together, earnest prayer being made. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So, pretty secure. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, now this is a profound miracle that, that plays out here. And, and the miracle starts with the, the miraculous work that God had done in Peter's heart to the point where Peter is sleeping. He is chained to the ground. He clearly is just relaxing, and he's got two soldiers around him in a cell being guarded by other sentries, guarded by some other guards outside and by a gate that's locked. And Peter's just like, he's fast asleep. That's the first miracle. Is it Peter's so just like, my God's on the throne. I'm taking a nap. I'm going to get a full seven in or eight or whatever, I, however long Peter slept at night. He's just there. And then an angel of the Lord stands next to him, doesn't wake him up. A light shines in the cell, still not waking up. And then, then the angel strikes Peter on his side. Like, uh, you, just, you just have to laugh sometimes in Scripture. He has to strike him on the side. Peter's sleeping like a teenage boy on a Saturday morning. He's like, Nothing waking me up. The glory of God shining in the cell and the angel standing next to me. So the angel, I guess, had to like brandish a weapon of some sort and be like striking Peter on the side. He's like, Peter, get up. Hello, Peter, I'm here to free you from prison. He says, get up quickly. There's an urgency. Then, it's clear that Peter is still not completely awake because he thinks he's dreaming now. He's like, having a dream, and in the dream, I'm freed, and there's an angel, and we're walking past all the guards, and past the next set of guards, and then the gate opens by itself, and, and then it's kind of, you, you know, parents, like sometimes if you wake your kids up, and they fell asleep maybe in front of the TV or something, and they wake up, and they're like, uh, uh, you're like, time to go to bed, and then they walk into the bathroom, you're like, no, 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 you're, you're headed to your bedroom, you're, don't sleep in the bathroom, that's not going to be your best move, and you kind of have to direct them to their to the right spot and then make sure they lay down, right? 
Like, that's what was happening here. Peter's being led by this angel until the point in verse 11 when it says, when Peter came to himself, then he looks and he's like, I'm free. And he says, I am sure. Of course he's sure. That's the most obvious statement ever. Of course you're sure. You're standing outside the prison. I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Why? Because he knew God's people were praying. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, now you gotta, you gotta understand, it's just, just make sure you you're getting the testimony of what's happening. He just got freed from jail. Eventually, they're going to find out, right? And then they're going to start looking for him. We see this later in the passage. So he's sitting there. He's outside. He goes right to the house where all the Christians were gathered, which is a high-risk move, honestly. But he cares so much for what's happening there that he's like, well, I mean, I'm risking my life every day anyways, preaching the gospel. And so he goes to this house, and he knocks at the door of the gateway. The gate's locked. Um, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognizes Peter's voice. Look what it says. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Rhoda opened the door for Peter. He's escaped from prison. And she's just like, Peter, I'm going to run in and tell everybody. So she runs in. She tells all of the people about Peter. And he's out there like, Rhoda open the door for me. And look what happens inside. Verse 15, they said to her, she's like, it's Peter. They're like, you're out of your mind. You're you're crazy. They don't think it's possible. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. She's like, it's Peter. It's his angel. It's Peter. It's his angel. They, They say it's his angel because they think that Peter's been executed. That's the only possibility they were thinking about right now. God's people are about to see that God can do more than they can ask or imagine. And, and so, so they're sitting there and there's this interaction back and forth and, and they think it's his angel, they think he's been killed, but then, but Peter continued knocking. He's like, how many times do I have to keep knocking? And then it says there, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Peter's like, I'm not staying around because they're going to come after me. Verse 18, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So I don't know what's going on in Herod's world, but if you remember the map from the previous weeks, um, you know, Jerusalem's here and on the, on the coast is Caesarea. So apparently Herod's like, um, it's going to get really hot, like the, the feedback from the Jews. So he decides to take like a beach vacation to Caesarea. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And in this testimony of God's glory of God's power and the believer's faith in God. It's just, the, the big idea here is that fervent prayer is the mark of a church that believes in God's power. And, and, and there's really two takeaways that I want us to receive this morning. The first one is this. Pray 
like God is all-powerful. Pray like God is all-powerful. God's power is on display in this testimony from Peter's life. He's in a prison. He's chained down. He's got guards to the left and the right of him. Four uh, squads of soldiers because what they would have done is they would have rotated fresh, alert, realizing my life's at stake and my making sure that he's kept in prison and just, just ready, attentive. There's guards at the door. There's guards outside leading to a gate. The gate's locked. There's no chance of escape. It really is the impossible situation. And if you analyze the situation without faith in an all-powerful God, there would be no hope. See, if you look at the situation and you look at it with sort of logical eyes and limitations put on you by all of the voices that have spoken to your life about what is possible and impossible, then there will be no hope. But God's people look at an impossible situation differently. They believed in an all-powerful God who could do the impossible. What they knew in the early church, like we know from the testimony of Scripture and from the way God's worked in our own lives, is, is that only God, only God can heal bodies lame from birth. Only God in his power can bring healing to any sickness. And only God in his power can raise people from the dead. The theological word is omnipotence. I love Wayne Grudem in his, his theology book, Systematic Theology, his definition for omnipotence. God is able to do all his holy will. God is able to do all of it. All of it. Whatever he's willed, he's not like, oh, kind of met a limitation. Not going to be able to accomplish that. He adds, in, in, in a few pages later, uh, Wayne Grudem says, there are no limits on God's power to do what he decides to do. That is omnipotence. The prophets said, uh, Jeremiah 32, nothing is too hard for you, referring to God. Nothing is too hard for you. Matthew 19, with, with God, all things are what? Church, possible. Possible. Again and again, the message is clear. God is all-powerful. So knowing that, then the question simply should be, why does the church pray? Why do they gather together to talk to God in their moment of need? Why is their prayer fervent and eager and intentional? And why, why should our church pray individually and collectively? Why should we gather together to talk to God? Why should our prayer be fervent? Now, please, church, sometimes we just, we just got to avoid overcomplicating things and moving to this paralysis by analysis. Let's just keep it really simple. This is what the early church knew at this point in the teaching of Jesus and their experience as a church, and this is what we know through the testimony of Scripture and through the way God's worked in our lives. Sometimes you just need to distill it all down and get to some very clear essentials, and it's this. God is all-powerful, God has invited you to pray, and God works through prayer. Just those three. 
Hold on to those three. They are more clear than any other reality in the whole uh, work of God's revelation, both in Scripture and since then. God is all-powerful. God invites you to pray, and God works through prayer. John Piper's helpful here. He um, said this. He wrote this. He said, neither is prayer pointless. It is one of God, one of the God-ordained causes of things that God plans to do. Prayer is part of the plan for how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. Now, I understand just in putting that in front of our church. <laughs> there's, there's questions that come from that, and there's, and there's these, these like realities that we try to ask questions about and figure it out. Church, listen, there is a reality of mystery in prayer. And there's ways things work in and around prayer that the only way that we can categorize all of prayer perfectly and understand all contingencies and all realities around it is if we were God ourselves. I don't want to get all of it figured out. I want to understand what God's word clearly teaches and I want to walk in obedience to that. And I want to believe at every point in my faith that there is a God that I am following that is so um, other than me, so different, so set apart. And there's a mystery to it. But there are some certainties. There are some certainties. Because there's things that we can see and understand and there's so much happening that we don't have eyes to see. But Scripture's refrain again and again is God is all-powerful, God invites you to pray, and God works through prayer. And so stop believing the lie that prayer is pointless. Stop believing the lie that my prayer is just empty phrases that are being spoken into the air. And please hear this. If your theology, your understanding of God is causing you to pray less, then there is something flawed in your theology. If your theology is causing you to pray less, then there's something flawed in your theology. Because your approach to prayer defines what you believe about God and his power. When going through something, when we walk through something difficult, are we, are we trying to fix it or are we depending on and seeking after the, the, the God who is all-powerful? If you walk through your day barely acknowledging God, then that says everything about what you really believe about that God. That's the hard, convicting truth. Do you trust him uh, to, to, to work in his ways and are you seeking that leadership and guidance over your life or are you just deciding in your own sovereign will the way that you want to go and then asking God to bless your ways? Receive the conviction this morning, church. Because the early church is giving us a really beautiful picture of just authentic, childlike faith at a moment that had all of the weight equal to any of the trials that any of us are facing in our life, have faced, or will face.
it's a revelation of what we really believe prayer is. And you see it affirmed so often in Acts for that reason. We, we, we have to stop saying when we talk about prayer with one another, the, the, the common way that we talk about it is we, if somebody asks you, how's your prayer life, maybe in a small group or in a friendship, the, the, the default that, that I, I'm, I'm there too, I do this often, is it's like, oh, I just need to make more time for prayer. I need to pray more. My prayer life kind of, I'm distracted. I, I, it's just not going well. We use these ambiguous kind of, honestly, let's just, let's just be, let's, let's all just kind of come and be honest. It's superficial. Instead, what you should be asking is, God, what is a week in my faith and understanding of God that is restraining prayer in my life? You should be asking, what is keeping me from regularly, passionately, and fervently talking to the all-powerful God who loves me and through faith in Christ sees me as his child? You've got to ask the question that moves past the superficial, like I just need to pray more and get to the root of the issue is that fundamentally there's something flawed in your theology. There's something that you might say you believe in, but you don't really believe in that when the rubber meets the road. And you've got to compare your view to Scripture and see how they respond in moments that are so clearly trying. And you have to see that again and again, they're praying like God is all-powerful. And they're praying like they actually believe it to be true. And then we have to ask the question, not how much more time do I need to pray, but what's flawed about my understanding of God that's leading to a prayer life that seems like I don't really believe in any of it. understand that the conviction in regards to this, God wants to meet us with with grace. But lesson number one is pray like God is all-powerful. Lesson number two, persevere even when disappointed by a previous outcome. Persevere even when disappointed by a previous outcome. I noticed something in this passage as I was studying I had never seen before. Sometimes, honestly, we all can, I, I think, grow in taking time to let the, the fullness of Scripture fall on our hearts. I want all of us to, to grow in that, to move more slowly and purposely through Scripture. But as I was working through this this week, I, James was beheaded by Herod. This was James. It was James, the son of Zebedee. It was the one who was working with his father, with John, his brother, at his side. He was the, the one who Jesus came along his path and, and said, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And, and they lay down their nets and their father and all the loyalties there and they literally shift their loyalty to Jesus Christ alone and they commit to following. This is James, one of the 12 apostles. Like, that's who just got killed, brutally killed by, a, by an attention-seeking, deeply insecure, people-pleasing ruler 
who was intent on persecuting the Jewish Christians so that he could find favor. And he ordered a sword to cut his head off. Imagine the tragedy of this for the church. James is dead. The Christian community at this point, you've seen it all the way through Acts, was intimately connected. They knew each other. Everyone would have known James. They would have known his face. They would have likely had had meals with him or talked about Jesus with him. Anyone who would have known that he was captured by Herod would certainly have been praying and interceding for him. And then now, to hear the news of his death, certainly there would have been a a grief that would have fallen over the church in response to this. And then the questions that always come in cycles of grief. Why God? James? He's one of the apostles. Certainly, you you have a protection for him. Why? He's being used by you so powerfully, not him. And then they took Peter. And now the church certainly has to be like, what is going on? And just just observe here, did did the Christians respond by retreating and running away in fear? Did they respond by pulling back from the Lord, concluding that God was not hearing their prayers? Did they gather to to raise their fist in anger and announce the injustice of God in allowing this persecution and having one of their leaders so brutally killed? No. Right after James is killed and Peter is taken and captured, they gather and they fervently pray. They don't grow bitter. They're not moving to doubt, although I'm sure they were wrestling with those temptations. They didn't alienate from one another. They rallied together before God's throne and fervently pray. They persevere even when disappointed by a previous outcome. Some of you in this church have been tested by deep, deep disappointment and pain. Some of you have prayed fervently When your child got a diagnosis of cancer and rallied people together to that, and then weeks and months later, watched the coffin lowered into the ground. Some have gotten to a place in their marriage where they knew and understood that it was a crisis and prayed fervently for reconciliation and for a turning only to find the divorce papers served and to walk a road you don't want to walk. Notice the response of the early church when faced with trial, with their very lives at risk. They persevere even when disappointed by a previous outcome. They don't scatter. They didn't isolate. They remained together before the throne of God. They're persevering in dependence, in faith, in trust. Listen, just in the last six years as a church, 
individually in people's lives and corporately together. We've, we've seen and walked through disappointment and struggle and the reality of the brokenness of sin and of the world. And listen, we, we don't have Herod dragging any of our leaders to prison or beheading us. But we have a culture just as opposed to the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And we have an enemy who wages war against our souls and, and wants just as much as Herod to destroy what God is doing. And we live in bodies that decay and circumstances don't play out like we would want or hoped or have dreamed. But receive the example of this early church. They didn't scatter, they didn't isolate, they didn't spend their time consumed with conspiracy theories and end times prophecies. They didn't run from the opposition and find some place off the grid to isolate and just wait for the coming of Christ. They didn't stockpile weapons to defend themselves against Herod. They rallied together before the throne of God and they fervently prayed believing completely and totally that we have no power in our own to achieve the mission that you've called us to, God. It is all in your hands as the all-powerful God, and we are going to persevere. We're back here again, God. Church, when we persevere in prayer, we may not even know how God is bringing it about, but he's walking us towards victory. And when you isolate and you begin to question the character of God, you'll face certain defeat in a variety of ways. We're stronger together. We're stronger together. We're stronger together not trying to accomplish in our own strength. We're stronger together kneeling at the throne of God. So that even when your face is wet with the tears of grief and disappointment over unanswered prayer, there is still a commitment in your soul that's rising up because of your confidence in God's power that, that even when disappointed by a previous outcome, I will persevere. I, I, I want to, my cry in, in every circumstance in my life to be like Job in the Old Testament when he lost everything but still declared. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That is a godly response to deep, dark disappointment. Persevere, even when disappointed by a previous outcome. And because of their perseverance, we get a glimpse into God's provision for them in that moment. And God brings about this miracle of freeing Peter from prison. It wasn't guaranteed. They were surprised by it. But then rejoiced as a result and it says that they were amazed. See, Paul knew this about the way God works. That's why in Ephesians 3, he wrote out this prayer for us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us through God's spirit, to him be glory, because it's his power, not mine, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Fervent prayer is the mark of a church that believes in God's power. So our call, church, is to pray like God is all-powerful and to persevere even when disappointed by a previous outcome. And I don't know how this, um, this call to prayer is landing on your heart, but I can share with you how it landed on mine this week. I'm deeply 
uh, deeply convicted. This message in so many ways um, penetrated past to some places in my heart and life where I realized that I was not believing that God was all powerful in this part of my life, in this thing that happened in the past, in this weight that I was carrying, and even in some ways in the leadership of our church forward in the subject of prayer. And God just had me laid out, you could say, and uh, a tearfully repenting and asking that God would awaken those places with faith. And I'm there with you this morning as you confront that in your own life. The missional move this morning is for us to walk purposefully in a confession of prayerlessness. In a few moments, I'm gonna invite you to come forward anywhere you're at. You could come forward, I believe, coming forward and kneeling before God in this place is a symbol a designation of your faith, maybe just a cry of dependence that, God, I need some change to happen in my life and I wanna walk you through some ways that God might meet you or convict you in this. First, um, one of the reasons why we don't pray is because of guilt and shame. That's why we have to remember the cross. To remember that on the cross, Jesus said that don't let any guilt or shame of sin keep you from me because I finished it. I covered the gap that you fill that you feel right now because of your sin. And some of you just need to confess, God, I am coming and I'm leaving this burden of sin that's hanging over my life and I'm gonna leave it there and I'm gonna receive your forgiveness so that I can pray and draw near to you. Some of you might need to come forward and confess that to the Lord. Some of you, it might be no reverence for God. There's so many voices and priorities that grab your attention and distract you from the reality of God being the sovereign over your life. And some of you might just need to come forward and kneel and pray and say, God, give me a vision of you that would put me on my knees, that would draw me there, that would lead me there. Some of you, maybe it's incomplete understanding of prayer. You're just like, I don't know this subject of prayer. And so, we don't stand distant because of that, not when we believe that God's our Father. We, we draw near and we ask Him. We look for people that God could use to guide us in prayer and grow our confidence in this subject. Some of you need to confess that you've just been passive with that. Come and ask Him to lead you. Some of you, it might be believing that you don't matter to God. Caught in a cycle of believing God doesn't really care about me or love me, but the testimony of Scripture again and again is that God does love you and He's near to those who call upon Him. So some of you need to make a move just to confess, God, would you open my ears? Would you let my eyes and my heart be open to this truth that I don't matter because the truth of the gospel is that you do. And lastly, it might be a lack of faith in God. There might be a reality of God's power and other aspect of his character that you're just struggling to receive and, and stand in by faith. And so I just want to invite you forward. Just come. Begin to kneel and begin to ask, God, would you move in my life in this? I'm confessing my prayerlessness. This is why it's the case. And would you replace that with a fervency in prayer? So I want to invite you now begin to come and just kneel here. We're going to invite you forward. Let this move 
be a declaration, God, I am walking and moving towards you. I want fervency in prayer in my life and let nothing hold me back. Begin to come now as we just play over this moment. Come now. Even as we sing this next song, come. Let God greet you in this moment and lead you forward. Let's do it now.